Dog testing one. This, uh, <clears throat> the last retreat over the summer, someone had put a poem of T.S. Eliot's on the door of one of the um, bathroom stalls in the annex. It may still be there, <laughs> I don't know. Um, and one of the lines in the poem was, teach us to care and not to care. I see this poem, and you know how it is when you start to read obsessively those few things that are around, that are available to read. And that particular line, teach us to care and not to care, became quite meaningful for me in my understanding of what I was doing in the meditation practice of the particular spirit or attitude of mind that meditation cultivates, learning to care and not to care. A couple of years ago, when I was attending a class in um, Worcester, a class that was designed to teach meditation to people with chronic illnesses and chronic pain, a study was mentioned that had been reported in the newspaper. The study had happened in a nursing home where each resident of the nursing home had been given a plant. And half of these people had been told, well, we're going to give you this plant and you don't have to do anything for it. The nursing staff will just take care of it. They'll water it and you know, do everything that needs to be done. And you can just admire and appreciate it and know that it's yours. And the other half of the people in the nursing home had also been given a plant, but were told, this plant is your responsibility. You have to care for it. You have to water it. You have to keep looking at it to see what it needs. And, and this is going to be your own responsibility is to take care of it in that way. It turned out at the period, at the end of a year, when they were completing the study, that those people who had been given the plant and told that they didn't have to take care of it, that someone else would take care of it for them, were following along with just the normal rate of disease or disorientation and death as had happened in the nursing home through the years. But those people who had been given the plant and were told, this is yours to take care of, this is yours to nurture, to relate to, were, I don't remember the exact statistic, but there was some remarkably higher rate of good health and sense of aliveness and clarity of mind, less disease and less death. This was considered, in part, a study on intimacy, on the healing value of intimacy in one's life, even if the object is not another human being but even a plant, to have an intimate, caring, responsible relationship, even with a plant, has a very strong healing power. When I heard about this, I was struck by another facet, which was that even as remarkable as it was to hear about the results of that study, 
I also began considering how when we define that sense of intimacy, we think about it even in terms of relating to a plant, but we don't often, if ever, think about it in terms of relating to ourselves. And that it's considered some kind of dualistic activity between ourselves and someone else, or ourselves and a group of people, or ourselves and an object. But very rarely do we consider the healing power of feeling an intimate relationship to our own experience, to have that sense of responsibility and caring and nurturing and closeness and connectedness to our own experience. In that sense, meditation, the practice of meditation, is like embracing and opening up to the whole range of our own experience. It's developing an intimate and powerful relationship with the one being to whom we tend to feel the most alienated or the most disconnected from, and that is ourselves. So it's opening up to our own experience in the closest possible way. Sometimes meditation is described as turning on a light in a dark room. And it's said that it doesn't really matter how long the room has been dark, whether it's been dark for an hour or a day or for 10,000 years. Turning on the light is turning on the light. What happens when we do this, when we turn on the light in this dark room, is that it all gets revealed. You can just imagine yourself going up to an old attic somewhere that's perhaps been long neglected. You walk in and you turn on the light. You may find everything from unexpected, wonderful treasures to some very dark little dusty corners, some, some surprising objects and some great finds. There's a whole range of what can be revealed. And I think this particular period in the retreat is very evocative of that because it seems to be the period of the retreat where people are getting more settled in and you're actually getting much quieter than you realize. And some of those dark little dusty corners are getting much more evident. And the the conditioning of the mind, previous tendencies and habits, are starting to come out in full force. They're getting all too obvious. And these range from fear to resistance, to paranoia, to anger, a sense of being a failure. You know, some people have already decided they failed this retreat. (laughs) Um, Everything, you know, whatever kind of conditioning has formed how we relate to our lives and to uh, endeavors, it's starting to get revealed. And so it's not surprising and it's not a problem. And yet it can make this, this period of the retreat a little bit awkward as we just start this exploration. When I was first practicing and I received instruction in this technique, Meninger, who I was sitting with at the time, said to me, you should be with each breath as though it were your first 
and as though it were your last. And in just that same way, to be with each experience, each step, each act of reaching, each taste, each sound, each element of the mind, the resistance and the fear and the anger and the sense of failure and the competition, whatever it might be that is arising in the field of awareness, to be with it as though it were for the very first time and to be with it as though it were for the very last time. That kind of defines the the tone and the flavor of the awareness that we're cultivating. To be with each experience or each breath, for example, as though it were for the very first time, has two aspects to it. The first aspect is that sense of fullness and immediacy and totality of attention that comes when we experience something as though it were for the very first time. This means not comparing it to the past, It means not experiencing whatever this is in reference to or in relationship to something else, but it's experiencing it just in itself, just as it is in that moment. You can notice, just in paying attention throughout the day here, the different kinds of ways we relate to our experience, that produce that sense of completion or fulfillment or immediacy in the moment and those aspects which take us away. One of the things that can become very obvious in trying to pay attention in this way as though the experience were for the very first time is how much in our lives we can become addicted to increasing intensity of sensation or input, trying to have that increasing intensity provide us with a sense of fulfillment simply because we're not paying attention. If something is happening and we don't pay careful attention to it, then there is very little, if any, possibility of it being a fulfilling experience because we're not there, we're not fully awake or alive in that moment. And so it can provide a sense of of wholeness or completion for us. And yet rarely do we look at the quality of attentiveness we're bringing to the experience. More commonly we look at the experience and say, well, it just wasn't the right one. You know, it's not the right thing to have happening. If it's food, you know, and if you're eating a, a banana, and you don't pay any attention to how it tastes, and it's very unlikely that it's going to be fulfilling. More likely, the mind will, will very quickly say, if only I had an apple, <laughs> then I would be happy. That would really be fulfilling. And if you had an apple and you didn't pay any attention to eating it and to the different nuances of taste and how it changes and all of that, if you just thought, well, I've had you know, a million apples already, why bother? Then it's very unlikely that would be fulfilling. And yet again, rarely do we look at the quality of attention. More likely we would say, I wish I had an orange. If only I had an orange, then this would be a really good meal. 
and if not an orange, then a mango, and then a pineapple, and then on and on and on. Having a sense of of need or even addiction to increasing levels of input or variety of input, looking for fulfillment in that way, rather than looking at the one factor which can actually really give it to us, which is the quality of presence and wholeness that we can bring to the situation. There's a line in a poem by Robert Frost where he says, it was his last poem, I think, he says, life is an interminable chain of longing. And that's kind of what it's like. That's often what we fall into. It's this endless chain of longing for the next thing or the next thing or the next thing thinking that that next thing will bring us that sense of perfect happiness or peace, and yet it won't. This quality of not paying attention, not being present with the experience as though we were experiencing it for the very first time, can lead to the sense of of emptiness or wistfulness. And it's, it's an endless process. There's no way within that cycle to break free. To break free takes an entirely different point of view or relationship to the experience. I know, I think I mentioned this before, at least in some groups, when I was first doing this particular technique and I was trying to note carefully what my experience was throughout the day. I noticed that the most frequent label or notation that I made throughout the day was waiting. And I'd be going around, walking around this compound in in India, and I'd be saying, waiting, 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 waiting. And one day I just asked myself, well, what are you waiting for? And I realized I was waiting for something to happen so that I could pay attention to it. I was waiting for something important enough to happen or worthwhile enough to happen or exciting enough to happen or spiritual enough to happen so that I could pay careful attention to it instead of using each and every moment's experience. So that's the first aspect of trying to be with each experience as though it were for the first time. That sense of fullness and completeness, accepting it for what it is right then. Second aspect of it is to try to experience this phenomena, to experience the present moment's reality fully and with a sense of openness. This means trying to drop or let go of our concepts and opinions and especially interpretations about things. To be with the experience purely and simply, just as it is, to abandon or relinquish these concepts and ideas and attitudes about things, to relinquish them so that we can develop a very personal and intimate view of how things are, of the nature of things discovered by ourselves. So to relinquish as much as possible the conditioning that we bring with us. And we develop this as time goes on. An image that we often use, and I've used this example in some of the groups, is if I reach down and touch this, 
I think if most people were doing this and then someone said, well, what are you feeling? The obvious answer would be, well, I'm feeling the rug. But rug is a concept or a label, it's the appropriate concept or label. The actual direct experience is something that happens before that label emerges in the mind. And that's the experience of different tactile sensations. It might be heat or cold or vibration or pulsation or throbbing or a range of sensations that perhaps it's difficult to articulate. But that is the direct experience. The rug, which is the appropriate label, and by the way, is not a faculty you lose in doing meditation. You still can't find the appropriate label. That comes later, and that's another function of the mind. And this is an important distinction to understand because rug or floor is a relatively innocuous label. But take a word like pain, which may have many, many associations and meanings and interpretations that comes just with the idea of pain. To be able to get beneath that level of the mind and to relate to what is actually the experience in the moment, which may be burning or throbbing or twisting or a whole variety of actual direct experiences, allows for an open and intimate experience in the moment, not blocked or distorted by all of the meanings that that label or idea of pain may bring with it. To let go of the concept of body, even. To experience things in the simplest possible way as they appear in the moment. To let go of the concept of who we think we are and what we think we are capable of. Whatever self-image we may have developed and which is emerging to be able to relinquish that and to experience things directly. The second aspect to experience the breath or to experience phenomena as though it were for the very last time again is a sense of power and immediacy and surrender to what is actually happening in the moment not having a sense of complacency or um, being haphazard as we pay attention, to really understand what is in fact true, that our lives are so fleeting and so uncertain, so transient and impermanent and quite out of our control. Not to live our lives as though we had forever and not to do this retreat as though we had forever. I think one of the most common thoughts that emerges is, well, you know, tomorrow I'll start. <laughs> or this afternoon I'll really get down to it. You know, the morning's almost over anyway. You know, that kind of thing. But really not to be complacent, to experience each and every moment with as much power and completeness and integrity as we can bring to the watchfulness, as though it were for the first time and as though it were for the last. 
what begins to be obvious at this point of the retreat are three major factors which make it difficult in terms of our conditioning to actually do this, to actually be with each experience in this way, to care for ourselves and feel this connected to what is going on. The first of these forces in the mind is attachment. And this is attachment or clinging or grasping to pleasant experiences, to things which we find pleasurable. It's a kind of holding on. The Buddha once used the example, he said, to hold on to that which is pleasant, to try to hold on or cling to that which is pleasant, is like holding on to a revolving wheel. At some point in the cycle of that wheel, you're bound to get run over. It's inevitable that if you're holding on to something which is moving in that way, at some point you're going to find yourself on the ground with the wheel rolling over you. And this is the nature of attachment. The sorrow or the suffering of attachment is that it causes a sense of insecurity and dependency. Because the happiness we experience in, in experiencing something pleasant, whether it's a pleasant sight or sound or sensation in the body or thought or memory, the happiness we experience in that moment is a very conditioned happiness. If it is dependent on that particular experience not changing. If we are happy because that phenomena has arisen, because it is a pleasant sight or because it is a pleasant sound, and if that is what we are basing our sense of fulfillment and well-being on, then it is a very conditioned kind of happiness because it is conditioned on the arising of certain kinds of experiences and it is very insecure and uncertain and undependable because it is so very fragile. It is the most fragile kind of happiness imaginable because, as we know, everything is bound to change. It is the very nature of all of our experience and of our lives itself, our life itself, to be impermanent. And so to have a sense of wholeness based on the idea that something is not going to change or the hope that something is not going to change is a very forlorn kind of happiness. It's as though we felt very attached to summer and now it's autumn, moving towards winter. What happens when the seasons change? Do we fret and grieve and get angry? Or can we allow it as a natural phenomenon? It's just an act of nature. This is the way things are. And can we do that within as we experience different kinds of changes? We feel changes in our mind states. How many different mind states have you experienced since you got here? Or even how many different mind states did you experience in the last sitting? <coughs> Maybe hundreds, from sadness to joy and back to anger and 
over to doubt and then enthusiasm and you know maybe in the first five minutes you're plotting how you can stay all year and then in the next five minutes you're wondering how you can leave tomorrow and then you know it's constantly changing and going all over the place to be able to see that to be able to view that in the same way we would view and feel connected to a change in seasons now it's the rainy season or now it's the dry season to be able to to appreciate the texture and the flavor of each of those experiences in themselves not needing them to be a different way and to recognize that they are constantly changing and that if we hold on it can only be a source of difficulty just as it doesn't make sense to us we all would feel it would be kind of silly to look in a mirror and say well you know I've thought about it really carefully and I've considered all the pros and cons and I've made this very strong resolve now not to grow old that's my decision because we know we can't control the body we can't control the flow of life in that way it has its own nature and it will follow its own laws and just in that same way you can't sit down and say well I'm not going to have any thoughts this sitting you know I've worked it all out that that's really the key to getting concentrated or I'm not going to have any more anger now we don't have that kind of control the mind also follows its own laws it has its own nature so rather than trying to hold on to that which is pleasant to understand a very different way of relating to our experience an entirely different way of relating to our experience not clinging and not holding on and not grasping but allowing it to change to be there to arise and then pass away it's important to understand that this feeling of getting attached or this act of getting attached is not bad or wrong sometimes you know as as people move into or further into um, a kind of spiritual environment there's a whole new set of judgments that we can lay on ourselves and on other people and attachment can be a real sticking point in this one you know like oh I'm attached that's bad and that's not the point it's not that it's um, bad or wrong but to understand that attachment in its very nature leads us to being out of harmony with the truth because it is not connected to the fact that everything must change and that is the root of the suffering or the sorrow that comes with being attached because it is like telling a lie it's like telling a lie to ourselves or deluding ourselves not being in harmony with the true nature of things and so we, we work to relinquish that attachment to weaken that sense of attachment for the sake of finding a very different kind of peace or happiness in our lives the second major force that we discover which is also getting very predominant at this point in the retreat is aversion or ill will or anger or hatred depending or impatience you know, depending on the particular manifestation a sense of aversion to what is unpleasant in the moment 
can cause us to withdraw or separate or pull away from what is actually going on. It's the force of fear to pull, pull away from or try to push away. And yet in doing the practice, what we try to maintain is a stance that whatever is going on, we are trying to get a personal and intimate acquaintance with it. We want to come close enough to the experience so that we can see what it is in its own nature. It's very hard to investigate something when you're trying to push it away at the same time. And so it is not for the purpose of becoming numb or not caring that we try to develop equanimity or let go of aversion. It's for the purpose of being able to explore a much wider range of experiences than we normally would allow ourselves to connect to or come close to. You might notice, for example, in physical pain, that there is a very big difference between pain and suffering. That the pain may exist and may be quite unpleasant, and that usually there is a whole other level of mental anguish that can be going on at the same time that is tremendous suffering. Often that mental anguish comes not from the intensity or severity of the physical pain, but it comes from something else, from some association we may have with pain, or an image, or an idea, concept, a memory. They come from projecting that feeling of pain into the future, assuming that whatever pain is going on now is going to last for the rest of the sitting or the rest of the day or the rest of the retreat or the rest of your life. And then experiencing the kind of helplessness that comes from trying to take in an entire retreat's worth or lifetime's worth of pain all in one moment. We can't do that. So look to see what is going on in those moments when you really want to withdraw or push away, when you feel aversion or dislike of what's going on. See how much of it has to do with the actual direct experience and how much of it has to do with some concept or idea that's arising out of memory or out of projection into the future or out of some kind of conditioning about the present moment's experience. One of the kinds of themes that we use in doing the practice is that the only way out is through. And so rather than trying to transcend a certain experience, to go beyond it, rather we try to penetrate to the very depth of it, believing that right in the center of that moment's experience there will be the truth. And that that truth is available in each and every moment's experience, whether it's painful or pleasant, or neither. So rather than disregarding or discarding and trying to go beyond a certain experience, to go to the very heart of it. And there we will find the truth. In that sense, the word dharma or dhamma, which is often used to mean the Buddhist teaching or the teaching or the law, 
can be defined as the nature of things, to see things in their own nature and to understand the laws of nature, of how our experience relates to itself. We can't receive or we can't absorb what something might be revealing to us if we're in some way hiding or distorting or pushing away that experience. So to open up, to be as present as possible and as accepting as possible of the, that experience, even if it may be unpleasant. One of the um, things that happened before I went uh, to India and began practicing was that just at that time, Ramdas published his first book, which was called Be Here Now. And for people at that time who were interested in spiritual movements, that became kind of a watchword. Everyone, was, everyone believed in being here now. That's what we believed in. That was very important to be here now. And one of the first major lessons I had in actually beginning meditation was the recognition that I actually wasn't all that interested in being here now when, here, when being here now didn't feel very good. That I felt very committed and even compelled to trying to be here now when it felt good, but when it was painful or boring it somehow wasn't, didn't seem as important. And the irony of that was that in my first retreat, where I was suffering incomparable pain, <laughs> Ramdas was actually a student at that retreat. And as, you know, as I told you before, I would always move because I just hated the pain. And I would sit there steaming in fury about the pain. And then I'd move, and as I moved, I'd open my eyes, and my glance would usually fall on Ramdas, and I'd think, oh, right, be here now. <laughs> That's what I believe in. That's what I wanted to. So it's a good lesson as to what um, we actually are willing to experience in a sense of exploration. Again, it's important to understand that feeling aversion or ill will or dislike of someone or ourselves or some experience is not bad or wrong. It's not something to be judged in that way. But to understand how that too keeps us out of harmony, out of balance, and takes us further away from a true understanding of the nature of things. Because it is like a withdrawal or a separation. And again, it is out of harmony because it does not connect us further to the understanding of how things are out of our control, that things will happen according to their own laws, and we cannot hold on to pleasant things and make them stay. And in just that way, we cannot say, I do not want any unpleasant experiences, thank you. You know, it is not within our control to do that. And yet, we try, you know, it doesn't even take an hour on a, on a cushion to see that we try. And to understand how that keeps us separate and can keep us apart from the inevitable changes that will happen. A couple of years ago, Joseph and Jack and I and some other friends were taking a hike in California. 
and we were, we were in um, a national park in Northern California. And we decided we were going to hike in for three days and then hike back out in the same direction we had come in. So we were going to retrace our steps. And on the second day, Jack and I were walking together. And the morning consisted of about three or four hours of a steady, unremitting walk downhill. We're just walking and walking and walking and walking. And after about two hours, Jack and I were struck by the same thought, which was that <laughs> in the next day or so, we were going to be retracing our steps. <laughs> and we both just stopped and looked at each other. And Jack looked at me and he said, in a dualistic universe, downhill can mean only one thing. <laughs> And he was right, because two days later, it was a very steady, unremitting walk uphill. And to recognize that that is the way things are. In a dualistic universe, there is pleasure and pain, and pleasure and pain, and pleasure and pain. And it is constantly changing outside of our control. We can learn a way of relating to this from a basis of acceptance, not resentment or fear. We can learn a way of relating to this um, that's energizing, that can bring us a sense of happiness and fulfillment in the moment, and a lot of energy. It's not passive or um, vegetative. It's very energized and alive and awake, because we can come very close to what's happening. We can penetrate it. and have a deep understanding based on that. The third aspect, which we find as a kind of conditioning that starts to prevent us from being very fully with our moment's experience, is that of delusion. And delusion means, in this sense, not being present or not being aware of what is going on. It's a kind of cloudiness or spaciness or missing the object in the moment. And usually this happens when something is neither strikingly pleasant nor strikingly unpleasant. It happens when it's kind of mundane or ordinary, maybe when it's repetitious like the breath or the sensations in walking. And so it's a sense of less than full and complete attentiveness. Not a strong sense of being interested in what is going on because it is not strikingly pleasant or strikingly unpleasant. And yet if you think about it, if we take all those moments of our life when we don't really want to experience that moment fully because we don't like what's happening. It doesn't, you know, it, it hurts in some way, and so we don't want to experience it fully. And we add to that all of the moments of our life that we don't want to experience fully because it's not that interesting or there's nothing much happening or, you know, it, it's too ordinary. And we take those two groups of moments and we add them together it comes out to a pretty overwhelming stack compared to what's left, which is this tiny little collection of moments 
that we find pleasant and so we feel open to experiencing and eager to penetrate, to come close to. And it's just this tiny little collection of moments and yet that's what we cherish and that's what we call our lives. We say, well, this, this is what we're alive for and this is what we're awake for and the rest we don't want. The proportions can be pretty staggering. So what we're trying to do is to shift some of that balance. It's to develop an ability to come close to and yet not cling to each and every moment's experience, however it's manifesting. To understand that as we start to clear away the veils of conditioning, of attachment or aversion or delusion, which is the process of meditation, then the truth will already be there to be discovered. The truth of how things are isn't something we have to construct or manufacture. It is apparent and available in our actual experience. That's why the process is very pragmatic. All we need to do is to start clearing away some of the veils of conditioning so that our vision of things will not be distorted by what we like and what we don't like and what we wish was there and what we wish was not there, by hopes and fears and desires and attachments. To be able to clear away these mind states which function as veils, which distort our actual perception. To do that will allow the truth which is already there to manifest very clearly can learn to listen to all of our experience, to come very close and have that sense of caring, and yet also not caring, because it is not discriminating and not selecting and not choosing out that which we want to be aware of. We're not choosing and we're not discarding. So in that sense, all experience is equal, and we are cultivating the ability not to care, to have a sense of detachment. And yet it's not a cold and uncaring pushing away, because we also care. It's an openness and a willingness to experience. So that is the very delicate balance that we try to strike here. We talk a lot about delicacy, getting delicate, as the retreat goes on. The more we can do that, the more we can find that balance of being in the moment, being very full and open without needing it to be a certain way, the more the truth will be revealed. And everything, every single experience that we have shares the nature of this truth. There's a Japanese poem which says, to find the Buddhist law, drift east and west, come and go, entrusting yourself to the waves. It's that sense of entrusting ourselves to the waves that is just that delicate balance. This doesn't mean immersing in them or becoming possessed by the waves, the different experiences that come and go. And it also doesn't mean thrashing around, trying to push them away. 
but being able to entrust ourselves to the waves because each wave shares and manifests the nature of the water, which is what we're trying to understand and penetrate. Each wave is the expression of the water. So we entrust ourselves to each experience because it is through that process we will come to understand the nature of the underlying body of water. To know that the waves in the water aren't different. And in just that way, the nature of reality, how much it is changing, or the nature of dissatisfaction in our lives, or the quality of emptiness, or insubstantiality in our lives, can be manifest in each moment because it is inherent in each moment's experience. It is the very nature of the fabric of our existence. And so we can penetrate to the truth of that understanding just as we can penetrate to the touching upon the water through the expression of it, through each wave. It's because of that that the practice is really very simple, although it's not easy to do. It is a very, very simple process because it is a process of paying very careful attention to what is already there and developing a greater and more subtle degree of this kind of balance. An image that is very commonly used to describe meditation is that of walking a tightrope. If you can just imagine yourself walking a tightrope, stretched out over a gaping chasm, you're walking this tightrope, and you're happily walking along, minding your own business, which is watching the breath, or watching the sensation in, you know, in the actual walking. And everything is going along fine, except for the fact that as you're walking along this tightrope, happily minding your own business, different things start to come flying by your head. And this is sights and sounds and memories and realizations and insights and sensations in the body. All kinds of things just start to come flying by. Now, if these, these experiences are pleasant, then our conditioned tendency is to reach out to try to grasp them or hold on to them. And in that act of reaching out, we lose our balance and we fall off the tightrope. If these experiences are unpleasant, then our conditioned tendency is to reach out and try to push them away. And in just that same way, that act of reaching out means we can lose our balance and fall off the tightrope. And if those experiences that are flashing by are neutral or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, then we have a tendency to kind of go to sleep, which means we can just topple over and fall off the tightrope. The thing I've always liked about this image is the understanding that every time you start to reach out in some way and you find yourself hurtling into air, having fallen off the tightrope, Invariably, what you discover is that when you land, you land on another tightrope. 
that the moment of landing is the moment of beginning again. Because it is right then that you again assume that act of balanced watchfulness, neither reaching out to push away nor reaching out to pull in or hold on. And so it's actually quite comforting that there is always another tightrope. That each and every moment we can begin again. And this is actually the wondrousness of the journey and one of the radical teachings of the Buddha in terms of how completely things change, how completely things die and are reborn in each and every moment. And so in each moment of paying attention, we have the possibility of doing it, whatever has happened before, regardless of how many thousands of feet we have come hurtling down. In each and every moment, we have the possibility of fully beginning again, as though it were the very first time we were looking at a breath, the very first time we were experiencing sensation in the body. So it is both an incredible opportunity to let go, to relinquish whatever has happened. And it is also a great pointer towards a deepening understanding of impermanence. So to use each moment in just that way. Remind yourselves, I'm being with the breath as though it were the very first time and as though it were the last sensations in walking, sensations in the body and sitting, sounds or, or different experiences throughout the day of movement or tastes or smells, whatever it might be, to develop both that powerful immediacy of attention and that extraordinary and deepening sense of balance. I think I won't take any questions tonight. Um, if you have any questions, you can come up and everyone else can begin walking. Thank you. <laughs>